following episode contains graphic depictions, discussions of death and mutilation, discussions of violence, and presentations of otherworldly horror. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Foundation, new recruit. At the time of recording this, I have been working pretty intensely on preparing your lessons on the SCP-001 files. You might recall before, though, that we were working on a project on the Anti-Memetics Division here at the Foundation. Depending on how you're doing this lesson, how you're listening or watching it, this may have only been last week, but may have also been over a month ago, which presents a unique problem in presenting this episode. So, just to be careful, we're back and we're going to finish the anti-memetics files, at least the introductory ones that we've been provided. As a bit of a reminder, these files go into detail of the foundation division that exists to handle SCPs that can alter your mind, memory, and perception of reality. These so-called memory-eating SCPs are a distinct problem and many of our researchers have had a hard time remembering that they even exist without a regular dose of Class W monestics, or just nestics if you prefer. It comes from the same root as monomic or mnemonic. These tales that we have been provided are primarily about one individual named Marion Wheeler, one we assume was once a Foundation employee, but the records of them are limited to the files that we have been provided, as far as we're aware. This whole memory-eating situation makes it very difficult to know what's real and what's not, and I personally don't deal with memory-altering SCPs as often at my site, so I don't have access to the nestics that would make it possible for me to work with them. So as far as I'm aware, this is all we have. The original two files that have already been covered about Marion and her compatriots went into details of basic anti-memetic SCPs, the effects they have, and provided examples of them using their influence. In particular, we learned about SCP-055, who possibly affected an O5 member, and researcher Kim, who was the target of a more intense and more dangerous anti-memetic SCP. Today, we will be covering the final three files, known as Unforgettable, that's what you are, Case Colorless Green, and Your Last First Day all three of which have been provided by a researcher under the alias of QNTM. As with before, since these tales are provided to us in text form with no other voices, I've brought along a voice actor who will cover the role of Marion Wheeler, and I will cover some of the other voices on my own. Let's begin. L, it's finished. Lynn Marnus is more than 90 years old and hasn't stood at full height in 10. He was a tower of a man in his prime, two meters tall and built like a boxer. Nearly nobody he ever met was able to look him straight in the eye, at least not and tell him no. Illness had gradually eaten away at him over the years. He feels as if he lives at the bottom of a deep bath, everyone he ever meets looking down at him from a slippery, unscalable wall none of them ever able to reach down and help him up. He spent his final months crumpled up in a bed like a dying spider, changing to a corpse's color ahead of time. It might have been bearable if he'd lost his mind, but he remembers what he used to be. A leader. A powerhouse. He used to be able to alter the course of terrible events for the better, 
to get justice. He used to protect people. Elle, you can wake up now. But there's a warm wind through his thin, colorless hair, and there's direct sunlight coming down on him now, and the heat is filling him up like a tonic. He's outside. It's been too long since he was last outside. When he opens his eyes, he sees a lake, the one in the northwest which he used to have all to himself every summer. He's on a boat, his boat, lying on a blanket laid on the deck. A few kilometers away behind them is the little lake house, empty. It's perfect. He didn't know he had the strength left to safely leave the hospital, let alone travel this far. But if he put his mind to it and selected a final moment, this might have been it. Do you remember me? Marnus looks, with eyes which are strengthening. The woman speaking is seating on the deck behind him, attentive. She has a large plastic box full of medical supplies open in front of her, and a light suit jacket laid on the deck beside it. She has her sleeves rolled up so she can work. As he watches, she carefully disposes of a needle. A dim memory surfaces and starts taking shape. The woman is twice as old now as when he knew her last, and visibly twice as confident. It would be difficult to forget her. He taught her everything he... well, everything he could remember at the time. He remembers her as a field agent. He remembers sending her through hell a fistful of times. Arian. Oh, you died. You died surrounded by grieving family. They loved you very much and they cried over you. The funeral for the fake is in a few days, but unfortunately you won't be able to see it yourself. You're dead now, and this is what comes next. Marion Hutchinson. Marnus feels gold spreading through his bones. Miracle juice. It's Wheeler now, but she doesn't correct him. When you retired from the Foundation, L, we did what we do to all of us who retire. What all of us agreed to when we sign up. We gave you some medicine, which made you forget. As you stepped out of the door for the last time, all the work you did for us, great work, which saved lives, evaporated away, and your cover story sealed over those years became reality. That's why you've spent your whole retirement believing that you were former section chief at the FBI. It's what you wanted. It's what we wanted. It's what you agreed to. But you alone agreed to something else as well. You must be starting to remember now what that something else was. I've injected you with a serum which throws the human aging process into hard reverse and affects everything. Organs, tissues, memories. You'll be coming up on it soon. Remember? Yes. Marnus croaks, remembering. Dizzy. You signed over your final 12 hours to us. You asked for a full and happy and well-deserved retirement, but now, for the last day, you work for us again, because of one particular job. I have it in writing here, you see? Do you recognize your signature, and mine? I witnessed. Yes. Do you remember who you are? Dr. Lynn Patrick Marnus, of the Foundation. Anti-Memetics Division Founder. Wheeler smiles with relief. It's good to see him again. We need some memories from you. Memories which no one else in the world has access to, and which are buried so deeply that we can't extract them without killing you. So this afternoon, that's what we're going to do. We're going to extract those memories, and once we're done, you'll be dead. Marnus has already begun to regress to the time when he himself set this wheel in motion. He remembers, very clearly, discovering the mystery in his own head, 
the blank spots which he couldn't explain and couldn't safely access with any kind of chemical or physical technique. He remembers deferring the mystery until now. What happened in 1976? Marna sits up. His skin is beginning to clear and his breathing is improving. He feels as if his brain is cleaved in two by a wormhole, such as his eyes are focusing on different time periods. In his right eye, he sees the lake and the boat that he's dying on. In his left, he sees a collage of electrifyingly familiar past faces and places. Bart Hughes with his grin and thick glasses and baby face, looking like some kid dressed up as a foundation researcher. The original Site 48 crew, great text but a hopeless excuse for a softball team, and young Marion with steel strong nerves and a mind like a laser. Suits and lab coats and MTF operatives, all of it. And everywhere, paperwork and floods of serial numbers. He starts to speak. 1976 was the year he founded the division. He brainstormed the whole thing in one legendary week, hammering out the science and then distilling the first chemical monastic with the help of a hand-picked trio of assistants, the very first anti-memetics researchers. No anti-memetic SCPs had ever been observed up to that point. The entire operation was a shot in the dark. And yet, the team immediately struck gold. Passive black holes of information, active predatory infovores, unrememberable worms which covered the human skin like dust mites, contagious bad news, self-sealing secrets, living murders, Chinatowns. Wheeler wonders if there might be something more seriously awry with Marnus's head. His vision of events is hopelessly romantic. In Wheeler's experience, nobody looks back on the Foundation work too fondly. But it was all too fast. Special containment procedures take time to develop, much more time than I took. The Foundation as a whole acquires a dozen new SCPs annually, maybe. I found that many in one year, essentially single-handedly. It was too easy. It was as if I knew it all already and was just catching up. And then, one day, I realized I couldn't remember my life before anti-memetics. I knew I'd been a Foundation operative for decades prior. That was where I got the authority to start my own division. But there was nothing else there. It was a wall in my mind, which even monastics couldn't get me past. I went to the paper archives and looked at my own personal file and... Marnus trails off. Not because he'd forgotten what to say next. It's deliberate. The trailing off is exactly what happened. You woke back up at your desk half a working day later, remembering nothing. You went through the loop a dozen times before someone realized what was happening and broke you out of it. Wheeler knows all of this. The file still exists, and the anti-memetic effect still clouds the back half of it. All of this would be over in a second if any of that back half could be read. Marnus goes on. When I assembled the evidence, what I found was, well, a hole. Like a jigsaw with only the edges and corners. So I did the only thing I could do. I looked at the shape of the hole. And, together with Bart Hughes and others, I formed a theory. This is not the first anti-memetics division. Before 1976, there was another one. I was part of that division. Possibly I led it. Certainly I'm the only known survivor of it. Something happened to that team. Some anti-memetic force chewed up and swallowed the idea of the anti-memetics division itself. I was let off lightly. I lived. The rest of those people, whoever they were, however many of them there were, are missing without a trace. Wheeler nods. 
This much we know already. I was there when you wrote the note, remember? The question is known. It's the answer that we can't get to without killing you. It's the answer that we've waited all these years to get at. I'm here to ask you, what happened? Marnus covers his right eye and grimaces, trying. He fails. It's not there. You haven't sent me back far enough. There's still that wall there in my head. I remember why the question exists, but I don't remember the answer. I need more. Wheeler swabs his arm and gives him another ten years. Marnus seems like another man once a second dose takes effect. Wrinkles are sliding back up into his face, muscle mass is returning to his limbs, but it takes Wheeler a second to realize the real reason why. She's just booted him back across the field desk agent transition. Marnus has regressed a little way past senior management, the realm where most problems were solved by saying the correct words and into a time where he survived through physical fitness, situational alertness, and hands-on experience. Marnus gets to his feet for the first time in years. He scans his surroundings, examining the placid golden lake and the sky and the boat itself. He doesn't sit down again. He smooths down his hospital gown, wishing he had a sweater and, separately, some fishing gear. He brushes a hand through new, old hair. His sideburns are back. We weren't the Foundation at first. The first anti-memetics division was a U.S. Army project. It ran parallel with Manhattan during World War II. We called ourselves the Unthinkables. It began as an experiment in advanced propaganda. The objective was to cut through the physical conflict and find a way to rupture the ideological machine to obliterate the idea of Nazism. After two years, enough theory had been developed that the task had been reduced to an engineering problem. Another two years and the engineering problem had been reduced as well. What we had built was a very special kind of bomb. Unfortunately, we didn't understand what we built. Back then, we didn't have the monastics or the shielding that we could use to protect ourselves. We didn't understand how far ahead you need to think when you're working with this kind of technology. We got looped. It was textbook. We built the unthinkable bomb and test detonated it. And it worked perfectly. The bomb destroyed itself and erased its own successful detonation and flattened all the knowledge which had gone together to build it. We forgot that we had ever built the bomb at all and started over. To our credit, we realized pretty quickly what must have happened. There was a four-year gap in our progress now and there was no other way to explain it. But by the time we put the pieces together the second time, the war was almost over. The Nazis had been defeated by conventional means, and the Japanese had been broken by the first atomic bombings. So, we completed the second anti-memetic bomb, and after that, we sat on it. Marion Wheeler is silent for a long moment. The U.S. Army was secretly developing anti-memetic weaponry as early as the 1940s. We sure were. Of course, there's no one in the whole world who could back this up. That's right. Marnus flashes a smile that he hasn't flashed in decades. You only have my word for it. Cute, huh? Still, this is why you resurrected me, isn't it? For the sake of one more good war story. God, I miss the shop talk. I resurrected you because I want a very specific question answered. Although I can see that in a way you've already answered it. This bomb was the means, wasn't it? The old anti-mimetics division? The unthinkables. Bombed themselves. Somehow. That's right. From context, I assume they knew what they were doing at that time. I assume it was not an accident. It was not. The displaced half of Marnus's brain is anchored to the 70s now, so the true history of the new original Unthinkables is an open book to him, and he reads. 
After the war, the second bomb collected dust for years. We began sketching improved designs for a third bomb, but around that time, oversight was starting to flicker out. We completed our research and production objectives, and we were given no further objectives. Funding became shaky, and we couldn't figure out why. It wasn't entirely clear that the project overseers knew what we were doing, or even that they remembered we existed. It was a side effect from the research, of course, one we had no way of managing at the time. In 1951, a cult movement began in Ojai, California. It was... wrong. Everything about it was just wrong. In a matter of days, it was a national phenomenon and still growing. It was all over the news. To spread that far in months would have been credible, but days was simply impossible. We, in the team, could see the philosophy behind the cult was unnaturally contagious. It was the opposite of unthinkable. It was unforgettable. We knew that this was what our bomb was designed for. We prompted the overseers for direction, but there were no orders. And the time that the outbreak began, we were a US Army laboratory, through and through. Eight days into the crisis, the Foundation acquired us. All the classified research, all the material resources, and all the compliant top staff. And me. Anybody who wouldn't comply was mind-wiped and sent back to the Army. 20 hours after the acquisition, we deployed the second bomb, and the cult was gone. Nobody remembered it. Nobody remembered being part of it. Zero loss of life. A completely clean detonation. And that is when everything really kicked off. Once we started working for the Foundation, the pace of research ramped up. Every new technological advancement uncovered new, hidden SCPs. I passed the Foundation field exams and went out catching ghosts. My life turned into a twilight zone. I... Marnus blinks hard. He covers one eye and then the other. I remember all these different people now. It feels like my memory is in stereo. Almost every antimimetic SCP we caught before the wipe in 76, we caught again soon after the wipe. That means I remember two acquisition logs for each one. I remember two antimimetics teams, and I don't remember who belongs on which side of the wall. Do you remember Goldie Yarrow, the neurologist? Studied the mechanism of anomalously accelerated memory loss. Wrote a library on the subject. Wheeler doesn't. Dr. Ojobiru? Julie Still? Al, this is important. Are you in the right place in your own timeline to remember what happened yet? Marnus focuses, and he discovers that he is. Something changes in his eyes, and he stops reminiscing. He speaks more slowly now, his voice dropping to almost a whisper. There is an SCP which your division has never seen. The SCP which my division couldn't contain. The escapee. This is what you wanted, isn't it, Marion? Yes. This is the data I'm killing you for. Marnus locks eyes with her. It was eating my division alive. It came at us so hard and so fast that the only way we could stop it was to self-destruct. But we had no sight nuke. In retrospect, it's obvious to me now that this was because the SCP had consumed our sight nuke first of all. If you know it exists, it knows you exist. The more you know about it, the more it knows about you. If you can see it, it can see you. And you can see it. You've been looking right at it all afternoon. Wheeler is suddenly acutely aware of her surroundings. There are only two of them on the boat. The boat is anchored more than a kilometer from any of the lake shores. She hasn't brought any backup with her. There's a radioactive prickling in her brain. She doesn't... Red flag. Why didn't I bring any backup with me? That doesn't make sense. There should be a team at the lake house. There should be an MTF operative and a medic here on the boat with me. And a second boat, at minimum. Am I all alone out here? Why did I do that? 
She pulls her gun, but doesn't aim it at Marnus yet. Where is it? Is it in you? Marnus's voice is becoming urgent. He covers both of his eyes again. Destroying all knowledge of it was the only way to destroy it, and restoring my memories was a foolproof way to bring it back. It's in his eyes, most likely his left eye. Wheeler backs up to the other side of the boat, draws a bead on the center of Marnus's head, and says, El, are you still in there? There is a way to fix this. Dropping to his knees, he keeps his eyes screwed up and gropes his way forward blindly on his hands and knees. El, you need to tell me what this thing is. That's the opposite of what we need to do. You need to set off another bomb. We don't have that bomb. We lost that technology. You've always had it. There's an engineering lab in Site 41. You know it. An underground complex the size of a football field in pristine condition and totally disused. Why? Think about it. That's where your bomb's installed. But that just sets us back to square one. If I set the bomb off, how do we contain this thing? We won't. We can't. Ever. Don't you get it? The whole division is looped. We start the division, we run headlong into this thing, and either it eats us or we wipe ourselves out in self-preservation. The idea of anti-memetics is as old as forgetfulness itself. Humans have been looping through this problem over and over again since long before the 40s, maybe for centuries. His blindly probing fingers find the medical box. It's too late. As Wheeler watches, a waving black pedipalp, coated in dark hairs, forces its way through Marnus's left eye. Marnus screams, still on his knees. He grasps the pedipalp with both hands and tries to break it, but it's solid, as if it has bones inside. What is it? That can't be the whole story. Where is it from? What does it want? Can it reason? Can it speak? A second spider leg, significantly longer and spindlier, slides out through Marnus's trachea, ruining his throat and voice box and producing a gout of blood. He gurgles. A third leg shoots from his abdomen, like a spear. Wheeler shoots Marnus in the head. Marnus falls forward, limp, and then rises back up, lifted by three spider appendages as if he was a puppet being controlled by some gigantic and invisible being. His arms raise, as if supported by wires. She fires four more shots over Marnus's head, at the likely body mass of the invisible puppeteer, and fires the rest of the cliff almost directly into the sky. The whole boat vibrates, along with the surface of the lake, as if responding to infrasound or a localized earthquake. Then the boat shudders violently and starts to lift out of the water, raised by more unseen appendages. Wheeler holsters her gun and goes for the medical box herself, pulling it away from Marnus's floating feet. There's a compartment with a class B amnestic, the fast-acting stuff, in serum form. She does a hurried burst of mental arithmetic, measures out the correct dosage in the syringe, and, hand-shaking, plunges it into her wrist vein. The boat is still rising. Whatever the monster is, it's colossally tall, or maybe it flies. She is, of course, already dosed up to the eyeballs with monastic drugs, otherwise she wouldn't have been able to perceive any of this. Foundation medical literature warns, in the strongest possible terms, against putting both kinds of drug into the same brain. Best case scenario, this ends up with her in the hospital. They're 30 meters up in the air now, 10 stories. There's a stabbing pain developing in her left eye. She kicks her shoes off and throws the gun away. She goes to the edge and contemplates the drop for a disbelieving second. She jumps. It takes two heart-stopping seconds of freefall for her to hit the water. The chilled hammer blow of the impact is enough to blank her mind out. By the time she surfaces, she doesn't remember where she fell from or why. And likewise, the skyscraper-sized being which claimed Marnus and the boat has forgotten about her. What the hell? What, what the hell? Where the hell? There's nothing above her. No explanation. Only the symptoms of the drug cocktail gave her any indication of what just happened. 
a sensation like hundreds of tiny lumps of hot solder in her brain, and pain and exhaustion spreading through all of her tendons. She wants to die. Swim. Get to shore first. Then you can die. The extraction team finds her around dusk, unconscious on the lake shore. They stabilize her in the helicopter and then take her to Site 41 for examination and to have her system flushed. She spends a solid eight days at home, detoxifying. No monastics, no amnestics, no exposure to dangerous memory-corrupting SCPs. No work visitors. No work, the doctor also tells her, pointlessly. It isn't anywhere near the first missing event in Wheeler's life, nor is she the first person in the anti-memetic staff to have such an experience, but the sensation is no less disturbing for its familiarity. As any procedure, she writes a report summarizing everything she can remember. The gap in her memory is about 13 hours. Then she adds a report to the extensive, complex map of missing time which a whole division maintains collectively. It's a map of holes, and the map is becoming large enough that very faint patterns are gradually forming. The outline of an enemy is becoming visible, or perhaps a group of enemies. When she quizzes the extraction team later, none of them remember who activated the emergency beacon which summoned them. In fact, the beacon itself cut out long before they landed at the lake. Wheeler compares the current size of her division with her best estimate of what it should be. Maybe she needs a few more key people here and there. So, assuming the division was fully staffed before the event, maybe those empty roles are the people who died this time around. Maybe one of them activated the beacon. A commendable act by someone now only known to exist because of that single act. It's weeks later that Wheeler discovers the largest hole in her memory. Who founded the division? When? Item number SCP-3125 Object Class Keter Special Containment Procedures SCP-3125 is kept inside Cognito Hazard Containment Unit 3125 on the first floor of Site 41. This containment unit is a 10 meter by 50 meter by 3 meter cuboidal room clad in layers of lead, soundproofing, and telepathic shielding. Access is through an airlock system at one end of the containment unit. This airlock is programmed to only allow one person to enter the containment unit at a time, and to remain locked until this person exits before allowing another person to enter. Under no circumstances may any coherent information be allowed to leave the containment unit. This includes written and electronic notes, photographs, audios and video recordings, sound, electromagnetic and particle-based signals, and psi emanations. During the exit cycle, a purge system rigged to the airlock flushes the occupant's memory by flooding the airlock with amnestic gas for three minutes. A senior anti-memetics division staff member must visit SCP-3125 every six weeks or 42 days. You're kidding me. That's the whole entry? That's the whole entry. It isn't even the 50th strangest thing that Paul Kim has seen in the database, but still. No description, no acquisition report, no test log, no addenda, no clue who built the unit or when or how many times it's been visited or who carried out the previous visits or what they took in with them or how long they will be in there. Well, obviously Bart Hughes built the unit. And this cannot be denied. The man's signature style of containment architecture is recognizable a mile out. 
sleek, white, plainly impregnable without the aid of extremely heavy tools. Which makes it at least seven years old, at 60 visits or more. Guess there are good reasons for the rest of those emissions. Anyway, Timer Watchdog says it's time again. I don't like the idea of you routinely exposing yourself to a cognito hazard so dangerous that we can't even write the reason why we can't write it down, especially because it's impossible for us to recover any usable information this way. You're gonna go in, be incommunicado for two hours, and come out a smiling amnesiac. What do we gain from that? It's just a breach risk. Wheeler hears every word of this and elects to ignore it. There's a vague shape of familiarity about the entry as written, and there are a few word choices which reassure her in an intangible way that it was written by someone who knew what they were doing, possibly her. Kim is still talking. We should just scrub that last line from the database entry. There can't be anything good in that room. Wheeler puts her keycard in the slot. The airlock rewards her with green LEDs and begins to cycle open. It's built as a slender, vertical cylinder with a single opening. The entire thing rotates on its axis. Inside, there's barely room for a single person to stand without their shoulders touching the walls. What, what are you taking? Wheeler ducks to step in, turns to face to him, and shrugs. Stick a gum. I can get you field gear. The airlock begins to rotate again, emitting a low, quiet thrum solely as an audible warning that there is machinery in motion. We'll raid inventory. Give me 15 minutes and I'll turn you into a one-woman war. If Wheeler says anything in response to this, it's cut off by the soundproofing as the airlock rotates. Kim is left alone in the antechamber. He stares out at the outer door for a worried moment. He presses his ear to the door for a while, but hears nothing. Not even a faint tremble from the airlock mechanism. Inside, it's pitch dark for a few seconds. Then some unseen sensor detects Wheeler's presence and begins the fluorescence up. Half of them, anyways. The other remain inert or flicker aggressively. The room's interior walls are made from milky white glass, bulletproof, knowing hues, and are plastered with paperwork, taped and blue-tacked in a vaguely coherent mass. Where there is no paperwork, people have drawn directly on the walls in marker pen. There's a conference table, long and elliptical, covered with more paperwork and a tangle of laptop computers and serpentine power supply cables. Power has returned to the machines and they are slowly booting. A data projector warms up and shines a map of the world over the far wall, almost lining up with a network of scribbled annotations on the same wall. Post-it notes of all colors litter the carpet like autumn leaves. Other than that, the room is empty. Skimming the paperwork, Wheeler discovers that nearly all of it is handwritten, and most of it charts the progress of conversations. Most of the entries are dated and signed, and most of the dates are weeks apart. The conversations are panicked and fearful back and forths about dozens of SCPs, some of them anti-memetic in nature, but none of them obviously related to one another. None of the notes mention SCP-3125. The only name that Wheeler recognizes is her own which appears on 1 in 10 or 20 of the notes. The notes seem authentic, and the handwriting is definitely hers, but her notes also seem desperate and uncertain in tone as everybody else's. This unnerves her. There are diagrams on the walls, too, which are too complex to decode at a glance, but complex enough to make her eyes hurt to look at them. Still lost for a logical entry point to the data, Wheeler curses all of her predecessors. 
Asynchronous research, whereby the topic is forgotten entirely between iterations and rediscovered over and over, is a perfectly standard practice in the anti-memetics division, and her people ought to be better trained than this. There should be an obvious sign, or an obvious single document to read first, which makes sense of the rest. A primer. Wheeler recognizes the voice as her own. She moves around the table until she finds the laptop making the noise. There's a video playing, apparently recorded on the laptop's own camera in this room. The Marion Wheeler in the video is seated, and looks unfamiliar in a way which takes the one watching a moment to put her finger on. Not exhausted, not physically sick, not injured. She's seen herself that way before, in the mirror. This woman's willpower is gone. She's beaten. Everybody will be screaming, why did nobody realize what was happening? And nobody will. 
Wheeler is at the core of foundation anti-memetic science. She's had all the raw data readily accessible. There are extensive written calculations on the walls, but she doesn't need to read them. She can do them in her head. All it took was the slightest push, that slightest suggestion. Staring through the laptop screen, eyes wide and defocused, she understands how it all links together. She sees SCP-3125. And she feels dwarfed by it. She's encountered terrible, powerful ideas before, at every level of memeticity, and subdued them or even recruited them. But what she's picturing now is on another order of magnitude from what she knew to be possible. Now she knows it's there. She can feel it like cosmic radiation, boring holes in the world with its thousands of manifestations and freely laying waste to anybody who recognizes the larger pattern. It's not of reality, not of humanity. It is from a higher, worse place, and it is descending. The other Wheeler presents her finished diagram. She has drawn a mutated, frantically complex, grasping hand with five-fold symmetry. It has no wrist or arm, just five long human fingers pointing in five directions. At its core, there's a pentagonal opening, which could be a mouth. But the diagram was already there. It's plastered across the wall in the background of the video, plain as day, a meticulous collage in green, easily two meters in diameter and showing the same meme complex to a hundred times the level of detail. There are smaller diagrams of different elevations arrayed around it like spores, and its arms are spread wide around the seated Wheeler, who sits directly in front of the mouth with her back to it. Wheeler, watching, does not realize this and does not turn around. points at something on the wall, out of view in the laptop's camera. Wheeler, watching, turns to look. In an upper corner of the room, there is a constellation of dizzyingly complicated schematics. Barque's initials are on every page. Apollo 11 without a single engineer deducing that the moon existed. 
find another way. What the hell's wrong with you? Wheeler's now crouched in front of the video, trying to understand what she's watching. What's wrong, Marion? Are you okay? I killed myself in here. But my team would find SCP-3125 without me, and then they have to fight SCP-3125 without me. It's going to happen soon, whatever happens. In the next two months at the most. This year it'll be over. I may die in here anyway. I'm on so many nestic drugs that my endocrine system is shutting down. Taking amnestics at the same time as the chemical than this. What happened to you? Who's Adam? I don't know how we survived this. I don't know how we win. We're the last ones in the world. After us, there's nobody. So I'm done. I'm going to walk out of the store and forget who I am, and then I'm going to be you, Marion. And you troll. I have to figure a way out of this because I can't. There's the sound of a door opening, and then a piercing pulse of sound and light which terminates the recording. Wheeler stares at the dark screen for a long minute. She's never seen herself so weak, and it damages her ego a great deal to see that this is even possible. She feels disconnected from what she saw, like it happened in an alternate universe. She feels revulsed and appalled by that version of her, more so to know that that version is still inside her somewhere. Doesn't make sense. Looking at all the same facts, what made her give up? What did she know that I don't? Who was Adam? The answer to this question is so obvious and sickening that she instinctively distrusts it. She circles around the answer, probing it, trying to find reasons to reject it, but it's inescapable. Adam was someone she knew when the video was recorded, now completely removed from her memory. Adam was someone the thought of whose safety paralyzed her with fear, Someone in the same headspace, someone she couldn't bear to lose. And then she lost. But how'd the room get built in the first place? Anybody's guess. Wheeler imagines Hughes building it as a proof of concept, followed by a cascading series of lucky chances which led to it becoming the War Room. Someone discovered SCP-3125 at random while sealed in the room. They wrote notes to themselves which set up the skeletal external SCP database entry and the containment procedures, most of the paperwork and computer hardware was left behind by later visitors. It could have happened. But what if there's another room? Unbidden, a cute factoid comes back to her right then. Site 41 is almost completely vacant. In particular, 200 meters below Site 41, there's an empty heavy engineering lab, an underground complex the size of a hockey stadium. Self-contained, in pristine condition, totally disused, sealed up, original purpose forgotten built who knows how many decades back by a dead generation of anti-memeticists. What if that's where we built our weapon? Do I really believe I'm that smart? That my team and I had that much foresight that we got lucky? 
She turns to look at the airlock, running the numbers in her head. And to my medics division staff, other than me, 38. 42 days till the next iteration. It's past the end of the year. It'll be too late. If I leave this room now, I'll never be back. The plan I have now is the best plan there's ever going to be. We're the last ones in the world. After us, there's nobody. Kim is so deeply buried in work at his terminal, and the airlock is so quiet that he almost doesn't notice when it starts to cycle open again. We need to check you for notes, he begins. But then he sees that Marion Wheeler is curled up at the bottom of the narrow cylinder, panting as though she just finished a marathon run. Kim holds out a hand, but she shakes her head, electing to stay lying down, knees bent up to her chest, sucking down lungfuls of air. What in the world happened in there? Just need to breathe. Be okay in a second. I think I blacked out for a moment. Might have inhaled some. I think I'm okay. I remember the plan. Kim looks confused and worried for a second. Then they replace him. You shouldn't be able to remember anything. What did you do? Hit my head. Wheeler says, and then goes back to concentrating on breathing properly. She suddenly becomes acutely aware that Kim has her effectively cornered. Disliking this configuration for reasons which she's only gradually putting back together, she levers herself up to one shoulder and tries to stand. Kim puts a hand on her shoulder and pushes her back down. You look terrible. There's something in fleth on your neck. Do you see that? He points at her throat, then taps on the same spot on his own. What? On your neck. I nephi, you've been infected by whatever was in there. We need to act quickly. He reaches for his keyring and unthreads a Swiss army knife, and unfolds a short, gleaming blade. He does this in such a methodical, ordinary way that Wheeler almost forgets to react when he leans down towards her to cut her throat. Almost. She grips his wrist. They're locked like that for a moment, a tableau. She looks into Paul Kim's eye, but it isn't his eye anymore. She squints, wondering if she's making eye contact with anything but a hole in space. She already feels the force bearing down on her own skull, trying to drill into it. But she knows its shape, and that means she can hold out, maybe for a few minutes. She had hoped, prayed, that Kim would not succumb so quickly. And in a crazed little way, she thought there'd be at least a sign, a theatrical doubling over as his mind was wrenched out of its socket. Kim's wrist spasms as he tries to lunge with the knife. Wheeler parries, and its tip glances off the airlock interior wall with a scratch. They scuffle for an awkward second, and she boots Kim in the stomach with both feet, sending him sprawling into the antechamber. She launches out of the airlock and dives over him, and sprints away from the containment unit. She feels SCP-3125 following her as she runs, like a spotlight. She hears a crash in another part of the site, as the first piece of the ceiling caves in. Marion Wheeler is curled in the corner of Site-41's main freight elevator, descending, and clutching a shiny red ray gun almost as long as she is tall. The gun has a two-tinned prong instead of a barrel, and its stock is a weirdly asymmetrical mass of pipework, more like a Swiss watch or a small intestinal tract than a weapon. The gun is SCP-7381, and it comes from a long-dead planet. Not too distant a planet when all's said and done, which conventional astronomy has yet to observe. 
A tornado of violence and destruction is tearing through Site-41 and through the minds of everybody working there. Ceilings are being brought down, and the Site Pharmacy is a sucking hole at the side of the building. The armory is buried. That's why she had to go through Area 09 and is now toting anomalous weaponry instead. The Antimimetics Division operatives she meets in the corridors are all broken. Some of them curled up and raving while their minds evaporate and they die one memory at a time. Some infected with a collection of ideas which compel them to shout guttural phrases in strange languages. And to procure blades, never guns, and work on those demented victims and each other and themselves. Wheeler doesn't recognize any of the people. Their faces are all wrong, torn up with hatred and misery and vindictive glee. She's been trying to avoid fighting, but she's had to kill one man in self-defense already. Fired at his heart. SCP-7381 simply erased a half-meter wide cylinder of matter, removing his upper torso and lower jaw. He fell to the ground in four pieces. SCP-7381's beam is invisible, silent, and recoilless. It was like using a child's toy gun. Wheeler is petrified, but more than that, angry. This is too much. I can't deal with this. I shouldn't have to deal with this. This is my fucking first day. But how much sense does that make? Wheeler studies her reflection in the dark glass of the elevator control panel, and she tours the interior of her own skull, examining her thought processes. There are hints there, which would be difficult to articulate to somebody who didn't know her as well as she knows herself. She isn't thinking like a newbie. She's instinctively breaking the problem apart, the way an experienced Foundation operative should. Hell, a newbie wouldn't even know how to carry out a detailed psychological self-examination of this kind. A newbie wouldn't even think of it. A newbie would just suffocate. First thing it did when it saw me was everything I knew about the Division. And everything I know about it. If I had a plan, it ate the plan. But I'm still me, so I can come up with that plan again. It's already right in front of me. I just need to see it. If I were me, what would my plan have been? She scratches absently at her left wrist. Taking some hardcore nestic drugs would have been a smart first step, I guess. Reinforcing my mind so that I can't erase the rest of the steps. Damn. The nearest source of monastic medicine is the site pharmacy, but it's already been destroyed, and in any case, the elevator is headed down, away from it. No, stop. The pharmacy's been destroyed. How do I know that? Well, because she was there. She remembers finding the pharmacist crushed to death beneath a fallen medical cabinet, her skull an unrecognizable splatter of scarlet. She remembers the floor being torn away beneath her feet and only barely making it out of that portion of the building alive. She remembers a modular package colored safety orange with an enormous black Z on it. Her heart nearly stops at this. Oh god, what did I do? She remembers the dozens of warning signs covering the package. She remembers a three-factor authorization procedure she had to follow to get into the sealed container where it was stored. She remembers the centimeter-thick book of medical advisory information, which she discarded, and, rolling her left sleeve back, she finds a fresh needle mark with a speck of blood, and remembers administering the injection. This was my plan? This is what it takes to fight SCP-3125? I've killed myself! Class Z monastics are the last word in biochemical memory fortification. Class Z monastics permanently destroy the subject's ability to forget. The result is perfect eidetic memory and perfect immunity to arbitrarily strong anti-memetic interference. The dose is taking effect now. Wheeler didn't read the book because she already knew every word of it. She knows everything that's about to happen to her. She can already feel her mind hardening, like steel, and developing the symptoms of extreme sensory overload. 
She can see everything. There are extra buttons on the elevator control panel, the lowest of which, the 30th floor below ground level, she somehow already pushed. The walls of the elevator are covered with graffiti scrawled by the desperate and dying, people whose conceptual presence was eradicated from reality years earlier by the Alistair Gray anti-memetic kill agent, reducing them to the level of ghosts. In one corner of the freight elevator, there is even a half-corpse, unidentifiable, so many layers removed from reality that not even flies can smell it, its cells winking out of existence asymptomatically over the course of years. There's a fistful of tiny white worms exploring the floor of the elevator car, near where she's sitting. Revolted, Wheeler shuffles back from them, shaking one or two more of them out of her hair. The worms are among the most widespread and successful anti-memetically cloaked organisms in the world. They are everywhere, in every biome and in every room. She can hear a loud, alarming drone noise, a continual roaring which has the texture of ambient noise and is continually getting louder. It's as if it's been there for her entire life, and it's only now that she's begun to hear it. It's too much data, too much sound, too much light. Having her eyes open is like jamming them full of needles. She clamps her hands over her ears and screws her eyes up. Even like this, she feels the vibration of the elevator's slow descent and the heat of the failed air conditioning and the movement of the clothes on her skin. And meanwhile, her vision is flooding instead with what could be hallucinations. The human sensorium routinely generates huge amounts of data, and the human brain is adapted to discard almost all of that data nearly immediately. Altering the brain's behavior to retain that data is extremely dangerous even for very short time spans. Wheeler takes one hand away from her ear for just long enough to punch the metal wall of the elevator car, bloodying two knuckles. The pain gives her a focal point, a memory which screams a little louder than the rest. And she finds… the plan. She doesn't remember it. She bootstraps it from first principles, in a handful of minutes, just like she's done a hundred times before. I know how to beat you. No. SCP-3125 says to her, You don't. The elevator stops at the 30th floor below ground level, and its doors grind open. They wait, open, for a long time. Further up the elevator shaft, there are distant rumbles of more parts of Site-41 being reduced to crumbs. Still crouched in the corner, Wheeler mutters, SCP-3125 doesn't have a board Of course, I do. SCP-3125 is a five-dimensional anomalous metastasized mass of bad beams and bad anti-memes and everything in between seeping through to our physical reality. It isn't coherent, and it isn't intelligent. It can't communicate. This is an auditory hallucination. SCP-3125 scoffs. You know what I hate most about you, Marion? You're consistently, eternally wrong, and yet you're still alive. All those lost battles, every year of that entire lost war, but somehow, you always cobble together enough dumb luck to walk away unscathed. The eternal, sole survivor. You don't deserve that kind of luck. Nobody does. While it's talking, Wheeler leans hard on the ray gun to get to her feet. She lodges one shoulder against the wall of the elevator car, still with her eyes closed. She braces herself and opens her eyes. The corridor ahead is empty. There's an airlock at the far end. This one large enough to drive a truck through, built from ultra-toughened white metal alloy in Bart Hughes' established style. There's a panel beside the airlock. She closes her eyes again and hobbles forward, using the ray gun as a crutch, stretching one hand out ahead of her as guidance. Someone has to be last. Someone has to be the best. Your team is dead. Their minds have been pulled out like eyeballs. They're hollow people with 
holes in space where their brains were. The war is over. Finally. It's just you, Marion. A division of one. Dying from monastic overdose, 200 meters underground, cared for by no one, known to exist to no one, up against an immortal, unkillable idea. Wheeler reaches the airlock and fumbles blindly with the panel until she finds a slot for her keycard. For a few seconds, it seems as if nothing is happening. Then a yellow light flashes, the enormous mechanical interlocks unlatch, and the door cycles open with all the fuss of a flower's petals unfurling. Noise, Hughes always held, is a symptom of imperfect engineering. Behind her, she hears the freight elevator close up and return to ground level, and she knows that someone has summoned it, intending to pursue her. Ideas can be killed, she says, stepping into the airlock. How? With better ideas. As the airlock cycles closed, so does the hermetic seal. SCP-3125 is shut out. If something can cross over from conceptual space into reality, taking physical form, then something can cross in the opposite direction. It must be possible to take a physical entity, mechanically extract the idea which embodies it, amplify that idea, and broadcast it up into conceptual space. A bigger idea. A better one. One designed specifically to fight SCP-3125. An ideal. A movement. A hero. The machine Wheeler needs to build is the size of an Olympic stadium, and she doesn't have a fraction of the heavy mimetic engineering experience to do it, let alone the material resources or the time. But she knows, someone taught her, she doesn't remember who, that an anti-memetics division operative is as good on their first day as they're ever likely to be, and the same must be true of the division as a whole. She tells herself, We won this war on the day it began. When we encountered SCP-3125 for the first time, we built this bunker. Bart Hughes faked his death and sequestered himself here so he could work uninterrupted while the rest of the division held on for as long as humanly possible. Buying time for this moment. I know this is what I did because it's what I would have done. I'm the final component. He's waiting for me. The space beyond the airlock is gigantic, structured and lit like an aircraft hangar and filled with hot, stale, dry air. Wheeler, still mostly blind, stumbles forward across an expanse of more than a hectare of flat, dusty epoxy flooring. Hughes! It's time! Nothing comes back but the echo. She glances up for a second. The space is empty. The castle-sized hermetic amplification broadcasting unit in which Bart Hughes was meant to be building is absolutely absent. Hughes himself is absent. Maybe the entire machine is anti-memetically cloaked? She wonders, momentarily. It would be a smart way to conceal the operation, even from the rest of the Foundation. But her brain is curdling in the strongest mimnestic drugs ever manufactured. There is genuinely nothing here. Almost nothing. At the center of the space, there's a small outpost. A group of trestle tables with tools and toolboxes scattered about the place. Parked behind it is an unmarked military truck with flat tires. On the back of the truck is a squat, squarish machine the size of a shipping container, with unshielded wiring and exposed pipework, and a long cable leading to a heavy-duty control panel on the floor. To the untrained eye, it's not clear at all what this machine is designed to do. It's the anti-memetic equivalent to a hydrogen bomb, the division's answer to a site nuclear warhead. 
activated, it would contaminate Site-41 and everything and everyone on it with antimimetic radiation. There would be no Site-41 and no division afterwards. Nothing any of the escaping, infectious staff did could have any effect on the real world. It's the wrong machine. It can't destroy or even contain SCP-3125, or even injure it. All it can do is sterilize today's outbreak. The other symptoms will persist. 50 or 10 or 5 years from now, or maybe 1 year or maybe tomorrow, SCP-3125 will return, bringing with it its MK-class end-of-the-world scenario. Human civilization will be entirely eradicated as an abstract concept, and be replaced with something unimaginably worse, and there will be no one to fight it. Wheeler leans on the ray gun for a long moment. The pressure of information in her mind continually increasing, reaches a point where she can't take it anymore and she starts to break. The Class Z has been in her system for long enough now that she knows for a fact that she has irreversible brain damage, and there's no antidote. She'll be lucid for another hour, then spend the remaining two or three hours of her life vegetating. That's right. This is good. This is right. I've survived it too long. I forgot what the universe this was. For a while there, I thought maybe this was the universe where we win sometimes. The agony in her head is like an ice axe She drops the ray gun with a clatter and sinks to her knees. She lies down and waits for either death or a better idea. A being superficially resembling Paul Kim arrives at the outer airlock. It examines the airlock uncomprehendingly for a few moments and then finds the keycard slot. It hunts methodically through Kim's pockets, then remembers the keycard around its neck. The airlock cycles once more, and not Kim goes through. Behind it, the freight elevator is returning to ground level a third time to fetch the rest. In the next room, the being which is not Paul Kim finds Wheeler, unconscious, with the ray gun dropped beside her. There is also a military truck, which it disregards. Not Kim lets its keycard fall from its finger and scoops up the ray gun. For a moment, it contemplates the unconscious Wheeler, then examines the gun itself, remembering how it works. It turns back to face the airlock and fires, punching a fat cylindrical hole in the white metal of the inner door until it's gone, then the outer door too, breaching the hermetic seal. A faint smile returns to Not Kim's face as SCP-3125 and its familiar, comforting signals flood into the bunker. A dozen more non-people are arriving by the freight elevator former anti-memetics division bodies. I found her! Not Kim calls out to them. It drops the ray gun where it's standing, as if it simply forgot that it had been carrying anything, and pulls out its knife again. It holds the knife between two fingers, in a casual, off-hand sort of way, as if it were a pencil or a screwdriver. The infected non-people gather with Not Kim around Wheeler, looking down at her with alien expressions of disgust or pity or malice. Why isn't she opening up properly? She can't meet them unless she wants the signals. Start with her eyes. It'll make the rest of her easier to correct. Not Kim leans down to start work, then hesitates, its knife a few centimeters from Wheeler's eye. She's whispering something, so quietly that only it can hear her clearly. None of this happened, Paul. You and I never existed. There is no anti-mimetics division. There's a sharp click as the bomb finishes its powering up sequence. Nobody in the room can hear this but Wheeler. Nobody in the room can perceive the bomb but Wheeler. All they can see is an empty truck. The world goes black.
And as we close, I would like to give a thanks to those in real life who contributed to the production of this episode, either directly or indirectly. In particular, I would first like to thank Kevin McLeod, who produced the background music that you found in this episode. You can find the background tracks that I used and more at incomptech.com, all under the Creative Commons with Attribution 4 license. I would also like to thank the previously mentioned SCP author, QNTM, whose content was provided under the Creative Commons with Attribution 3 license on the SCP Wiki. And finally, I would like to thank Noel, who did the voice acting for the role of Marion Wheeler for this episode.